In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Matthew 8, verse 1. We're going to go through 22. Having the wrong login information restricts your access to things. Yesterday, Tyler was hanging out at my house, and um, he wanted to see a video uh, lecture that I, that we were talking about. I'm like, we should see it. But I had to go, like, go. This was years ago that I watched this video. I'm like, oh, what's my login for this thing? And, you know, I had to do some digging to find it because I tried in the past and was denied access, access denied over and over. Turns out I forgot I had used one of my older emails. So I used that and everything worked like a charm. And Tyler and I got to be enriched in that lecture. Um, <laughs> Also, just a few weeks ago, um, I spent the whole week trying to clock in at Thousand Pines um, because you have to log in, use your phone to clock in. And I kept on logging in, and every time it says, access denied, request permission from your administrators. I'm like, what in the world is going on? So you know what you have to do when you can't clock in, right? You have to manually write in your punch form, and, and that would be easier. But instead, you have to type in your tiny little phone all these little boxes, my name, my email, like every time, right? It's just so annoying. So I had to do that for a week. And it can be, well, the sad story is, is that I was, again, just using the wrong email. <laughs> I kept trying to log in with my school email rather than my church email, and that was the problem. Um, but, like, right, we realize that you have to have the right qualifications to get access to things. And one of the most frustrating experiences as a human is when access is denied to you. Um, and you want in, but you're not allowed in. You want to be included. You want to belong. You want to participate. But there's a paywall or there's you're the wrong person or you don't have the prerequisites or you're not in the club. Just different things that can keep you on the outside. That's incredibly frustrating, especially when access is, is denied because it's something about you're not enough. You're not, you know, you're not enough physically. You're not enough financially. You're not enough spiritually. You're not enough socially. Maybe in some places in our country, not enough racially. There are all kinds of ways that we can be denied access. But what we see in Matthew, in these passages, is that Jesus gives full access to those who come to him in faith. Faith is the password. Faith is the email you forgot to log in with. It's the full access to Christ so um, Jesus has just come down from the Sermon on the Mount. And the first thing Matthew does, actually, you should look at the verses right before chapter 8. Some people think these should be part of chapter 8. It doesn't really matter where the chapters fall, right? But um, if you look at um, chapter 7, verse 28, just two verses up from chapter 8, we see that when Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So Matthew presents Jesus' first words as those of authority, and the people are moved by his authority. So then what he does is we go into a sequence of nine examples of his authority over the social realm, over the natural realm, and over physical uh, bodies. Like basically, we're going to see nine miracle episodes in which Jesus is demonstrating his authority, not just in his words now, but in his works. So it's the authoritative son of God that we're going to see in chapters eight and nine. Obviously, we're not doing all this tonight, though. 
Um, but what we are doing is we're going to do the first set of those nine. So the nine work Matthew does, you guys might have remembered when we analyzed the structure of the Sermon on the Mount, he works in a lot of threes, patterns of threes, and he does the same thing again. He's going to have three miracle stories. We're going to look at the first three tonight. We just read them. And then he's going to follow up that with an invitation to discipleship, a reflection. Are you really a disciple? Then he's going to give us the next three miracles. That'll start with the calming of the, the sea, um, and then um, the healing of the demoniacs that have the demons, and then uh, the, one, the man, the paralytic being lowered through the roof. And he's going to follow those three with another discipleship reflection. Are you really a disciple? He's going to call Matthew to follow him. And there's going to be a controversy about the gang that Matthew brings with him to Jesus. Uh, then he's going to conclude the last three miracles. And then again, there's going to be another question about discipleship. And that takes us to the end of chapter nine. So you see, he's really structured. Three miracles, discipleship. Three miracles, discipleship. Three miracles, discipleship. Um, so it, it begs the question of the reader. You see Jesus, you've heard his authority, now you see his authority, what are you going to do about it? Will you be a disciple, or are you just going to be among the crowds that listen and watch? Because there's a difference. We don't just listen and watch as disciples. We do his words, and we follow his works. So the first set of three miracle stories which we just read, uh, we were introduced to three characters, a leper, a centurion, and Peter's mother-in-law, a woman. These are three characters who would have had limited access to the temple. So it seems significant that Matthew clumps these three together because these miracles are aimed at restoring them into normal social living where they no longer have limits Well, they're still going to have limits to the temple because the Jewish religious leaders still run it. But see, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to come to the ones that don't have access to the temple, and he's going to be the temple to them. He brings it to the people. Um, So, for example, the leper, a leper would have been restricted from even entering the temple at all. Like the whole temple mount. In fact, I read in one, uh, one source that a leper wouldn't have even been allowed in the city of Jerusalem. That is full access denied. The centurion, well, he's a Gentile. And not just a Gentile. So Gentiles were not allowed into the temple. They're allowed around the temple. But there was a little wall in archaeology has found a sign that makes this very clear. Uh, any Gentile that passes this point, of this little wall they built around the temple, uh, would be executed. They passed this at punishment of their own death. Gentiles were not allowed. In fact, they were just in this, this massive courtyard outside the temple, and that's where they would have been selling the animals and doing the money exchanges that Jesus got really upset at. It's because what they had done is they essentially replaced the only place Gentiles can come to the temple and replaced it with animals, a farm, basically. And Jesus is like, whoa, dude, we're putting animals here instead of people? We'll get to that down the road, of course. Um, so, so Gentiles were limited. And so this centurion is not only a Gentile, but he is the wrong sort of Gentile. He is a commander of Roman armies. The, the hated Roman occupation, this centurion represents that authority. So he's really, in fact, the only thing more unclean than this situation would have been the leper. So we're going from extreme uncleanness to middle uncleanness, and then the woman, Peter's mother-in-law, is 
unclean in the Jewish religious system, but minimally. The Jews saw men as superior to women. In fact, most of the ancient world saw it that way. And the Jews were no different. Women were not allowed full access into the temple. There was specifically a courtyard called the Court of Women. And from the court of, so you have like the temple mount and then you have this wall around the temple and Gentiles can't go past that. But then Jewish men and women could go past that and then they could enter these gates and then go into this broad courtyard. Uh, this broad courtyard, men and women could enter. But then there were 15 steps from that courtyard up to the temple. And those 15 steps could only be ascended by Jewish men. And then they go through another gate and bring their offerings to the priest. Women could not go up those 15 steps. But here, it's as if Jesus is descending the 15 steps and saying, Peter, mother-in-law, call her Sally, Sally, I see you, and I'm going to give you the benefits of the presence of God. So that's what we're seeing, okay? Jesus um, is giving full access, and these are lessons that Matthew is showing us. So let's look at them. Uh, the leper, chapter 8, verse 1. Um, by the way, if you want to go back um, and listen to last week's, we did a, a narration of the leper. So um, another way of hearing this passage. But I want to point out some things that um, might help as we see the, this section as a whole. Um, lepers were, first of all, considered dead. If you got leprosy, you were treated as dead. In fact, you were so considered dead that, pe- that you considered you dead because you had, to, you had to cut off all social connections, live in quarantine, and it was considered that would be the case for you forever. There was never thought of being healed. You might remember that the Syrian king sent um, the general of his army uh, to the king of Israel. This is his second Kings chapter 5. And he says, he writes a letter and sends it and says, I want you to heal my general of his leprosy. And the king of Israel like tears his robes. He's like, who am I, God, that I can bring the dead back to life? That's what he says in response to healing a leper. And yet Jesus heals the leper. And more astonishing is that he touches the leper. So lepers were, um, it's actually... It's scary how similar lepers are treated to people who got COVID, especially at the height of the pandemic. In fact, let me tell you what the commentators say lepers are treated as and see how many of these you can make direct associations with. Um, First, lepers had to live in quarantine. Lepers had to cry unclean. You didn't do that, but you did have to let your workplace and other people know if you were unclean. Uh, They had to keep six feet of distance. When they were in towns, they had to keep a disheveled appearance. Now, that was not a requirement, but many people voluntarily kept a disheveled appearance <laughs> during COVID. All the long hair and beards that came out of quarantine, right? Oh, yeah. Sweatpants. Um, <laughs> sweatpants culture came into being, too. Um, and um, last, they had to cover their lower faces when they were around people. Hmm. But imagine now living like that. You saw how mad the world got. That's the life of a leper. Um, so that Jesus touches this leper is astonishing, right? He didn't ask to be touched. Jesus chose to touch him. Because Jesus here knows something about the human construction, is that we need touch. In fact, um, I don't know if you call them therapists, but the doctors who study the people and how we work, um, they they acknowledge that 
you can thirst for touch the same way you can thirst for water. It can be such a need that's felt. But sometimes we're not always aware that that's what we need um, because we are we're not really a touching culture anymore. We're very much individualistic and we, um, we've kind of lost a lot of physicality to life. But Jesus recognizes what this leper needs. And what would have been astonishing to everybody watching is he touches the leper unclean. You're supposed to keep six feet of distance and all that. But Jesus touches him. He should be unclean. Jesus should now go and be in his own quarantine and make sure nothing spreads on him. But rather, none of this has to happen because rather than Jesus becoming a leper, the leper becomes like Jesus reborn, raised from the dead, brand new. He is cleansed. And this is the picture of the gospel in a nutshell. And perhaps the reason that Matthew puts this as the first miracle story um, to show this is what it's all about. Jesus comes down, came down from the mountain. He comes down from heaven. He touches sinful humanity by becoming a man. And humanity is cleansed because he became a man. Now, yes, the wages of sin being death had to be dealt with, and that's why we have the cross, but humanity's cleansed because he became one of us. That's why we can become like him. It's the water becoming wine. Um, but here's what we also should take away from this, is the church should not shy from physical contact. We're going to have Indian squaw wrestling right here after church. If you, no, that's not what we mean by physical contact. <laughs> but we shouldn't shy from the fact that people can be immensely given a sense of place and belonging just by a hug. Things that we just don't do in normal society. The church is different. We should be different. We, we function as a family and we shouldn't shun physical touch. Um, so yes, Tyler, uh, greet one another with a holy kiss. Romans 16, 16, and 1 Corinthians 16, verse 20. Those are two places in the scriptures we saw holy kissing was common. In fact, that continued centuries into the church to the point that some of our earliest writers, the, the documents that we have about writing how to behave in church, some of them addressed how to kiss one another because it got a little too loud, is what one of them said. <laughs> so yes, those were taken a little bit out of context. Um, so it's probably good that we got away from the kissing part. <laughs> but we... <laughs> But we, we do have other ways of greeting and showing that we are in union. And that was the point of the Holy Kiss, was to show that we're not upset with each other, that we're family with each other, the same way you'd kiss your family. That was the idea. I think in our culture, hugging is fine. But let's also not forget the impact of things like water baptism. To have your body, not just, not just your soul told you're clean now in Christ, but have your body feel cold water on you, that's impactful. Um, to have um, anointing, if we pray for someone or commission them out, we put oil on them, that's impactful. Um, or if we lay hands upon someone and pray for them, mm -hmm. it makes a difference. Um, and let's not you know, minimize the fact that communion is still a physical thing. Like we haven't at least too badly cognitized that one. We, we still touch bread and we eat and we partake of that. These are things that the church shouldn't shy away from. Um, that people sometimes need a physical touch. Um, this is actually what experts say. Uh, many people actually know the book, The Body Keeps the Score. It's a, it's a well-known book in this area. Uh, but there's one section where this is what the author says. 
However, in contrast to conventional medicines, the most natural way that we humans calm down our distress is by being touched, hugged, and rocked. Think of children. What do you do when they are upset? This helps with excessive arousal and makes us feel intact, safe, protected, and in charge. Then Jesus tells the leper to show himself to the priest. Um, he's healed, like, but he says to do this as a proof or as evidence to the priest. And it's kind of like to say, hey, something's going on. Go tell the religious establishment that those that are called dead are now alive. So he would go to the priest and they would take, uh, there's quite a ceremony with the birds. You can read about it in Leviticus 14. There's like a bird ceremony and dunking and blood and flying. And then they would take blood and they would put it on the earlobe, the right earlobe, the right thumb, and the right toe. And then they'd do the same with anointing oil. So this leper is getting touch and significant touch. Like I'm reestablished in society. The, the temple accepts me now. Like there's a lot of things happening here. But here's a really interesting what if. If you look in Leviticus chapter 8, the exact same procedure of blood on the lobe, thumb, and toe was applied to priests who were consecrated for service. And one has to wonder if Jesus isn't saying, go and join my new priesthood. I'm consecrating you now that you're born again, in a way. So, question mark. Because I haven't read anyone saying that. I'm just like, hmm, maybe. Um, all right, so now the centurion. In verse 5, uh, so Jesus enters Capernaum, where it's just kind of like his headquarters. And um, we see in verse 6 that the centurion comes to him and says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And then Jesus responds to him, I will come and heal him. Now, the centurion never once asked him anything. All he did was say, Lord, my servant is paralyzed. And Jesus responded to that piece of information. Sometimes we don't know how to pray. We don't know what we're supposed to ask for. We don't even know what result we want in a situation. What this tells us is just tell Jesus about it. He knows how to respond. In fact, that is perhaps what faith can be described as, is faith is the ability or willingness to talk to Jesus in times of distress. It shows who you're trusting. I don't know how to solve this, and I don't even know what the outcome should be. You know, I'm telling you, I don't even know if I, don't even know if I want anything done about it. I just, this is it. I'm in distress. That's how... Faith is exercised in this instance. Faith talks to God in distress. Um, by the way, just a footnote. I, I don't see that it really changes the meaning of anything, but I do think it makes it maybe more personal, if anything. When the centurion says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed, uh, there is a good group of scholars who think it should say son because he uses the word doulos later. Um, it's a different word. than This, this one's uh, pice. Um, he uses a different word when he refers to I command a servant to do this, and he does it. So something like, because Pice is sometimes translated son in other places of the Bible. So um, he might be actually pleading on behalf of his son, which seems to be a lot more desperate than, oh, my servant. Um, the only reason he cares as much is maybe it's a good servant. It, it, it doesn't really change it either way, but it could be translated servant. 
Um, then he answers him, I will come and heal him. So if you look at the Greek, it's funny because um, it actually emphasizes the word I. It has the pronoun for I, ego. Um, and then the verb itself, though, the verbal form is going to say I in it. So it's a redundant in the Greek, which is usually done when it's emphasizing the pronoun. So it's saying basically, I, I will go heal him. So the way we would say this is, I myself will go and heal him, is the way that would read. However, with that said, um, we aren't sure, though, if this should be read as an affirmative declaration or as a question. And um, the evidence on either one is equal. And everyone I read said grammatically both are possible. So it's kind of like a, how do you want it to read kind of a game. Like the only time in the Bible you're allowed to do that. Um, so if it's read as a question, what Jesus is saying here is, do you want me to come and heal him? So the emphasis there is like, wait, you want me to come and heal him? You know I'm a Jew, right? And you're a Gentile. And it's taboo that I enter your house. Now, the favor of translating it that way is because later Jesus is going to treat the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 who pleads on behalf of her daughter and Jesus ignores her because she's a Gentile. And it's only through her persistent faith, which he comments here on the centurion's faith, that he decides to heal her daughter. Um, There might be other reasons that he does that in Matthew 15, but in support of the question is that Jesus has kept a distance from Gentiles until the end of the gospel. So that's one way you can argue it. It's like, he's like, you know who you're talking to, right? You want me to come to your house. Or, well, he didn't ask him to come to You want me to come? And the Saturian's like, no, I wouldn't dare ask for that. I know the risk that would put you in. I want you only to say the word. Okay, so that's how that story would read. Or if it's an affirmation, then Jesus is saying, I myself am coming to heal him. And that's a cool way to read it too, because on one hand, it's Jesus saying, I know who you are, and I know who I am, and I myself am coming. Contextually, it fits because he's just done this with a leper. He should not have touched this leper, but he did. He should not go into the house of the Gentile, but he's willing to. So he's saying, I myself am coming. He wasn't invited to the house. He's like, I don't care. I, I want to go to the house, and I want to go touch this guy. But the centurion, out of humility, is like, no, 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 no. Just say the word. Like, I'm not worthy that you should enter. He says nothing about social taboos and things like that. It just says, I'm not worthy. So the affirmative would be, I, I myself am coming. And it would read as if he's saying, I don't know what anyone else would say to this, but I will come. It's like Emmanuel, God with us, which was the beginning of Matthew and the end of Matthew's book ended with this statement, God is with us. And here he's, he's making this very evident. Like, there's no distance between God and Gentiles. I am coming. I am with you. Um, I think I favor that reading just because of the flow of these stories seems to be the train of thought. But um, one of the best Matthew commentators sides with the question one. So, you know, there you go. Um, So that's what is happening here. It seems to me that Jesus is saying, this is what I'm here for. I'm giving full access even to Roman army, military leaders, even to centurions. And then the, the last uh, thing to comment on on this one is the table part. I, I, he says in verse 11 that many will come from east and west to the table of Abraham. That was a Jewish um, 
image for the messianic banquet that when the messiah comes all will eat this great banquet and the and we obviously still know about this we talk about the wedding supper of the lamb in revelation and in fact the reading of john today was the setting at a wedding and we as christians read that and know it we're looking forward to the wedding with christ so that we'll have that feast there um the the whole coming from the east and west is an allusion to psalm 107 um, which is the beginning of the last part of the Psalms. And it's, it's, it's this really, Psalm 107 begins with this gathering the lost ones from all corners of the earth, and then it ends with hallelujah. Like the whole, from Psalm 107 to the end of the book is called Book 5. And it's all about the coming Messiah and how things will be great. Um, so Jesus significantly is alluding to Psalm 107 here. Um, and then... Um, um, the Messianic Banquet being a table and eating with Abraham and such. Very um, powerful passage in Isaiah 25. You can jot down. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, he didn't say for the house of Israel, he said for all peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. What veil is that? What covering is that? He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have awaited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is what centurions will be part of who have the faith the centurion has. Whereas those that don't, no matter who they are, they will be cast into outer darkness. So then we come to the third one. The woman. Verse 14. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. So, again, like we said, a woman could not go into the holy places of the temple. Um, but here Jesus comes to her and makes the house holy. The house is like a temple. And now she, not the priests, she is serving him. Isn't that cool? So Jesus fills the house, which makes it a holy place, a temple. And rather than Peter and the men doing the priestly duty, she's serving him. Uh, so we have this whole flip. Jesus is giving full access to his people. Um, now, uh, one important thing, another way perhaps to see this miracle story is that we've seen two instances where Jesus heals, and well, three, she's healed too, and at the very end, she serves in return. So we don't see her serving Jesus, hacking up a lung, doing everything, and, and making a martyr of herself, and then Jesus is like, yeah, you deserve to be healed. Good job. Um no, the healings come first. The grace works first, and then we receive and serve through that grace. He heals us to serve. And this is the pattern that is given to us in this story. So she's able to serve, and, and maybe Matthew's calling us too. If you've been healed, church, 
If you have received God's grace, what are you doing with it? Are we serving Christ with it? Are we serving others with it? Or are we just happy that we are no longer in pain? Obviously, that's great, and we give them thanks. But now that you can move, now that you can do stuff, what are you doing? Um, okay. So after these three healings that give these limited humans full access, Matthew then relies, uh, I'm sorry, uh, reflects on the nature of discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple? So the early church reading Matthew's letter, uh, letter, his gospel, we hearing it now, this should be our thought process now. As we see Peter's mother-in-law serving, okay, are we disciples of this teacher? So two potential disciples come in our last little episode to give us, uh, maybe to represent the challenges that we face today as disciples. On one hand, you have the guy who says, hey, I'll go wherever you go. And Jesus is like, really? Because I have nowhere to lay my head. And it's implied he's like, nah. And then we have the other one come and he's like, but first let me go bury my father. And Jesus is like, let the dead bury their dead. And we're like, whoa, that's harsh. Like, why don't you say, well, in two weeks' time, I might be over in Bethsaida, so go meet me there. It's like, no, he's just like, let the dead bury their dead. It's like, okay. Um, so what's going on here? Well, okay, so these two disciples, let's look at them as two examples of the things that we have to overcome to properly function as disciples of Jesus. So the first one represents the occasional disciple. The occasional disciple, which is epidemic in the church. The disciple who's like, yeah, I totally obey Jesus' commands and go wherever he goes, you know, when I feel like it, when it's convenient. Um, now, it seems like this guy is like all on board. I will go wherever you go until you actually look at what's happening in the language here. The Greek is that we have a passive middle voice. He guy is not actually saying, I will go wherever you go, but he says, I will go wherever you are going. Where is he going? We were just told in verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Not very specific, but in the next episode, we know they're on the boat, so we know they're crossing Galilee, okay? That's what he's saying. They're going to the other side. So from Capernaum, to the other shore and going eastward. So for you, it'd be like this way, right? Yeah, going eastward toward the other shore. You'll see where that is next time. Um, so the, this guy then comes up to him and says, I will follow you wherever you are going. So, oh, where's Jesus going now? I want to go in the boat. I want to go this time. Like, oh, you're crossing the sea. Let me go with you. And, and you, hear the, you hear the disciple that does this all the time. Like, oh, I want to go to church because they're doing this tonight. Oh, no, I'm going to stay home tonight because the NFL's in the playoffs and, you know, Sunday night football's happening. So I'm, well, maybe I'm stepping on toes with that one. But, um, but like, we, we do see the attitude, though, the attitude of the occasional disciple, the one who wants novelty, the one who's looking for experience, the one who's just like, yeah, I check in and out. But basically, I want to follow Jesus, but I don't want to be so close to him that we share sleeping quarters, I, I want to have my own space. So when he says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, we're going to be sleeping out and about like, ooh, that's a little like too much Jesus time for me. Well, we, Matthew is raising the question, is that really a disciple if that's our attitude? 
if because that is the attitude of the crowds that want to see the miracle that want to hear his message but don't actually want to be where he is even sleeping on the ground there's 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 boundaries that we put up so that's the occasional disciple and i would ask how are we doing if that's our attitude um the second disciple is the conventional disciple the conventional disciple is he who wants to follow what culture expects of him and follow Jesus. But wait a minute. There are times when these two things clash and you can't do both. In fact, if we took very seriously the Sermon on the Mount, which he just finished giving, we would find out real quick that Jesus's values do not align with culture's values in any way. Well, in some ways, but mostly no, no shape or form. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We're, like, we're already off to a bad start for doing cultural expectations. Um, so the, the conventional disciple wants to follow Jesus, but has to comply with his conventional way of life. So Jesus is an add-on. Well, unfortunately, we do see a lot of this too. Um, the way we see this with this guy is he says, let me go first bury my father. His father did not just die. So Jesus is not being harsh. You know that's true because the Jews would bury the father the day he died. This guy would not be out and about with Jesus asking if he'd follow him if his dad literally just died. That would not be the right... He's already off to a bad start and doesn't care about his father, so this comment wouldn't have phased him. Um, and he wouldn't have said what he said. So it's not that his father just died and Jesus is heartless. Rather, this is talking about that there were expectations in Jewish culture for a firstborn son to perform until his father died. And once the father passed on, now you are the patriarch of the family, and those expectations on you are no longer the same. So then he could choose to follow Jesus if he was the patriarch. But as the firstborn son, he has a service to his dad first and foremost. That's a conventional cultural expectation. And so what he is saying to Jesus is, first, let me bury my father. First, let me inherit the estate, and then I can do what I want. And Jesus is saying, that's not how I operate. You think I am bending to conventional culture here? I'm not bowing to these expectations. You follow me because you want to, or you follow your dad because you want to. One I think significant here is that he says, let me first go bury my father. Because we do first what we love most. We do first what we love most. And if his priority is dad, then of course he wants to do that first. We do first what we love most. So if Jesus' values don't line up with the values we were brought up with in our culture, what do you do first? It will show you what you love most. Let's even break this down further. Disciples do first what they love most. So you'll find out who you're following real quick. Like, what do you do first in your day? How do you start the day? What you do first is what you love most. Disciples put Jesus first and foremost because they love him first and foremost. And when there's a clash with what others expect of us, we love Jesus first and foremost. Which is why the persecution one is the last of the Beatitudes because Jesus knows you follow these these Beatitudes, you're not going to be liked by everybody. This is not a how to win friends and influence people sermon. This is how to 
be a disciple and be hated sermon. <laughs> That's what Jesus was giving. And so now this guy's put to the test. Um, it might sound like hard and like, ah, but Jesus reminds us culture is dying, but he is life. So we must really seek what do we value and where are we aligning our priorities? Um, all of this makes us step back and realize, okay, discipleship to Matthew is an all-of-life commitment. It isn't when it's convenient or occasional. It isn't when it matches up with conventional living. It is an all-of-life commitment. And yes, we, we, we can all do better in this, absolutely. But you have to understand that being a disciple and discipleship is not a destination. It's not a, I got there because I did these things. It's a direction. And you'll always be coming, you, you can always be becoming more of a disciple by gradually getting your life to look more like Christ. And you're never going to stop looking more like Christ. Therefore, you're never going to stop becoming a disciple. It's always going to be a direction. And so rather than being harsh on ourselves and saying, my goodness, I must not be saved. Like, that's not necessarily where we should be concluding here. It's realizing, okay, I am a disciple. I want to be a disciple, but I, I need to see these things continually growing. And, and that's what we must realize, that discipleship is an all-of-life commitment. Yep, it's going to take you time to commit all of that. But, hey, if if we haven't been letting things go one by one, then we have to ask, do we really value and love Jesus? Um the question Matthew leaves us with. Now, if we do, if we, if the question then I guess is this. We'll, leave, we'll stop here. Jesus gives us full access. Disciples give him full access. Whatever you want, Lord, you're my master. When we give him full access, Maybe we will find the whole town at our doorstep seeking healing. Peter gave full access to his house. Jesus heals his mother-in-law. The town crowds around that evening and he heals them all. Maybe when we live like true disciples and are committed to him, we start to heal other people even without knowing it. Their lives are changed and they start being drawn to Christians again. Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. For you are good and you love mankind. Amen.